Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon, and I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Well, we've been hearing an awful lot about progress in Ukraine. In the West, we're being told that Ukrainian forces are making progress. We're being told that uh, Moscow is quaking in their boots. Well, for insight into this, let's turn to our first guest. He's a Sputnik News analyst, and he's joining us from Moscow, Wyatt Reed. As always, Wyatt, welcome back. Thank you, Wilmer. Thank you, Garland. It's a pleasure to be on, as always. So we know that uh, Joe Biden's intent uh, in terms of the sanctions regime and all these other things was intended to cripple the Russian economy, bring the economy uh, to its knees. We know that uh, John Bolton has been uh, talking about regime change in Moscow. The last polling numbers I saw, I want to say that President Putin's favorability ratings was either 84 or 86 percent. So I don't know that John Bolton is going to be able to um, to pull off this regime change move. But give us a sense of, you know, you're walking around the streets, you're talking to folks. You, what's your what's going on in Moscow? What's the general sentiment of uh, of Russians on the street? Yeah, well, if Russians are supposed to hate President Vladimir Putin, certainly the vast majority of those I've talked about it seem to not realize that yet. People I talk to overwhelmingly express support for the ongoing special military operation, as is known here. Uh, When we talk about these advances, supposed advances by the Ukrainian forces, I'm not sure that really we're talking about the same thing. I feel like I'm kind of living in a parallel universe in some way, because from everything I've seen, the advances... Uh, at least in the Eastern Front, are generally coming from Russian Federation-aligned forces. They're coming in terms of the city of Artemovsk or Bakhmut, as it's referred to in the West. Uh, That is an ongoing uh, operation where basically you have uh, success on some level by the Russian Federation forces. And in terms of the South, yes, you've had some pushback in terms of the city of Kherson, you have seen, you know, some advances by the Ukrainian forces. But let's be honest. Uh, let's be clear. The the Russian side has advanced since February something like 120,000 square kilometers. Uh, in the subsequent months, forces aligned with the Kiev regime have taken back somewhere around 10,000 square kilometers of this territory. So we're still talking about lower than 10% of the territory that has been uh, liberated, according to most of the people that I've talked to in these areas, by Russian Federation forces and by forces aligned with them, like those of the DNR, the Donetsk People's Republic, the Lugansk People's Republic. So when we talk about Ukraine winning, I have to ask the question, you know, by what standards? Uh, In general terms of war, of conflict, uh, if someone takes 
120,000 square kilometers and you take 10,000, <laughs> you know, that force, that first force is probably winning as far as I'm aware. Maybe the rules of, of conflict yeah, like by, have changed. By 90 to 10. Yeah, maybe the rules of conflict have changed sometimes, <laughs> in the, you know, in the, in, since February. But uh, according to basically everyone on the ground, that uh, that idea that the Ukrainian regime is winning is uh, a little bit hard for me to buy. And I will say. Wait a minute. I just figured having, it out. I just figured it out. Garland, less is more. Oh, that's it. That's it. <laughs> that's it, Wyatt. That's the answer. Continue. <laughs> well, I will say right now the hottest action, so to speak, is taking place in the southern city of Kherson, where just a few days ago the vice governor of that territorial administration, a man named Kirill Stremesuov, ordered the evacuation of all the citizens from that city. And this was portrayed in Western media as basically an evacuation order that means that inevitably the Russian forces are going to evacuate themselves, that they are on the cusp of retreating from this city. I interpret it very much the opposite way. I interpret it in the sense that they are going to hold on to this city at all costs and they are evacuating civilians because they do not want people to die unnecessarily in what they expect to be an extremely active combat zone. And so when when they talk about, you know, these <laughs> when they talk about this situation, they they kind of paper this over. But uh, to me, what I expect to see in the coming days, in the coming weeks is a series of defensive lines established within the city of Kherson. Uh, you're going to see most likely snipers taking up eagles nests and high up buildings. You're going to see basically an all out defensive force established to turn this into a real hell for any of the unlucky souls that are prodded and pushed by the Zelensky regime into having to try to retake this city. I don't think they'll have a whole lot of success. That's certainly speculative. That's kind of my personal opinion. But it comes from having met uh, some of these figures, especially that man I mentioned earlier, Kirill Stremesuov. I had the chance to speak with him for several hours during the referendum last month in which the regions of Zaporozhye, Kherson, uh, Donetsk, and Lugansk all voted. Uh, those that did vote, overwhelmingly, they voted for realignment with the Russian Federation. During those four days, I was able to speak with, with Kirill. And, uh, you know, to set the scene, this is only a couple weeks after he had survived an assassination attempt, a car bombing, like the car bombing that took the life of the daughter uh, Daria Dugina, the daughter of uh, famous Russian philosopher Alexander Dugin. And so he had just basically escaped with his life just in the past couple uh, days. And he was cool as a cucumber. And I made a post on social media kind of explaining the situation. I said he made Ferris Bueller look like Woody Allen. That's how relaxed this man was after having escaped with his life. And so to me, when they kind of they want to interpret these remarks as though, you know, Kirill Stremesov and the Russian Federation forces are all trying to escape from this city. No, 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 no. That's not what's happening. They are preparing to make um, an extremely well fortified position out of this city. 
And I think really, you know, I, I am more worried for the poor souls that have been forcibly conscripted by the Zelensky regime that, you know, unfortunately, if they try to escape, there are numerous reports they could be shot by sort of blocking divisions on, you know, the most uh, notorious nationalist divisions have been employed, according to certain reports, to to shoot any of them who tried to escape the battlefield. I think really, you know, these are the guys that are really in harm's way now and not the Russian Federation forces uh, whose battle strategy, as far as I can tell so far, has been to basically create a pretty impenetrable defensive line, kind of a horseshoe in uh, what is called here in Novorossiya, New Russia, and to basically draw in these forces and then annihilate them with artillery strikes. And so far, that is what the casualty rate has borne out, that basically these guys are getting fed to the meat grinder, to the slaughter by Zelensky and company. And, um, you know, people in the DPR and the LPR and Kherson, they express some level of, of sadness over the fact that these guys, you know, are basically going to be sheep led to the slaughter. And they wish that there was another way to go about this. But, you know, the alternative, obviously, for the people of these regions, for the people of Donetsk, people of Lugansk, is to be subjugated, is to be suppressed and attacked by artillery strikes like the type that have been uh, inflicted upon the people of Donetsk for the past nearly nine years, like the type that almost took my own life uh, just a couple of weeks ago, the first night that I was in Donetsk. I was about 30 seconds away from getting hit by an artillery strike. I watched it unfold right before me. Um, you know, it's really a, a tragic situation that these this regime that has been put in power by the United States and the United States more generally, uh, which knows, obviously, which has admitted privately, and according to the Washington Post, that Ukraine will not win. Ukraine cannot beat the uh, Russian Federation. But they insist, nonetheless, on pushing these people into this combat zone and on sabotaging any efforts at peace. We know that Boris Johnson, before uh, he was replaced by Liz Truss, in this kind of ongoing sort of shell game of a prime ministerial position that's happening in the UK. When Boris Johnson was still the prime minister, uh, there were reports in Ukrainian media that he had basically insisted that while Ukraine might be willing, might have been willing in April to go to the negotiating table, the United Kingdom was not willing to let that happen. And so they basically sabotaged the efforts at a peace treaty, at a peace deal, and so far, it seems that no one in the United States government and the United Kingdom government is willing to allow these people to go back to a normal, peaceful existence. And the attitude on the Russian side, as far as I can tell, and this goes from the soldiers that I've talked to uh, from Donetsk, soldiers I've talked to on the way there on the transportation and goes to basic average everyday people is that. You know, we don't want to kill Ukrainians. We see them as a brotherly people, but there is no alternative because at this point, over two decades, uh, well, on the cusp of two decades now of uh, efforts by the United States government to endlessly expand NATO, to push this military alliance towards our border, knowing that they know, that we know that this is 
uh, an effort to destroy us and to ultimately impinge on our sovereignty and on and it's taken as an existential threat uh, throughout all levels of Russian society. This is something that even the CIA uh, director, former CIA director Bill Burns, privately acknowledged in emails that were uh, revealed by WikiLeaks. Even they acknowledge that this is a bright red line for Russian people of all strata, of all types of society. They knew it. They decided to do it anyway. And now we're seeing the sad results. And it's not nearly as many Russian people dying. It's the Ukrainians that are dying. And that's really the the biggest tragedy of this whole situation. Since you're over there on the other side of the pond, give us your thoughts on uh, Number 10 Downing Street. We've certainly seen uh, no shortage of memes of Larry the Cat, who seems to be in the running for the next prime ministership. But uh, Bojo's name is back. Personally, I'd prefer Larry. I think he's a whole lot sharper. But your thoughts? Yeah, we'd probably take Larry the Cat, maybe the head of lettuce over Liz Truss, maybe even Boris Johnson uh, all of this to me, I mean, it's a it's a political game. This is it's the same sense in the United States where we don't really get a chance to elect our government. We have an, a series of options that were granted um, in the Democratic side. Overwhelmingly, people wanted Bernie Sanders to be their nominee, but obviously the entirety of the Democratic machine colluded uh, to manipulate the results of the elections. Um, they insisted without any evidence that somehow Pete Buttigieg had won one of the first primaries. He didn't, but this was a, a, a media manipulation that was used to basically prevent Bernie Sanders from winning. Uh, the same thing happens in the United Kingdom. They colluded very openly. Uh, even with the CIA, you had former CIA director Mike Pompeo caught on tape uh, addressing a an influential group of Zionists and explaining that you know basically we we will take out Corbyn if need be that we will we will make sure that he doesn't to- he doesn't cross the line and of course it never got that far because there was a huge manufactured media campaign in the UK media to uh, insist without any evidence that Jeremy Corbyn was an evil anti-Semite and that this whole faction of kind of the left of the Labour Party was also anti-Semitic. There was never any evidence for it, but it was repeated ad nauseum and it was used to delegitimize him and ultimately crucify him and prevent him from taking number 10 Downing Street. So to me, I think we'll get another sort of canned candidate, another preordained person who is deemed to be acceptable to the status quo, acceptable to the financiers in London uh, and the financiers in New York, uh, more so, you know, just as much so as the the politicians in Brussels and in Washington. These are really kind of the people who are deciding what's happening um, in the UK prime ministership, not the people of the United Kingdom, sadly. Uh, I wish that the case were otherwise. I would have a whole lot more faith in these countries when they preach about democracy and human rights and they say this is why we're going and propping up the Zelensky regime in Ukraine. Unfortunately, I don't think that's the reality just as I don't think there's any chance of anybody progressive or peace-oriented peace oriented, uh, taking that prime ministership anytime soon. So, Wyatt, I know you've been traveling extensively throughout Ukraine and the region. Uh, what have you seen in, in, in Donetsk? What have you seen in, in Luhansk? 
as, uh, again, we're getting reports here from Western media that seem to be totally, totally different than reality. Absolutely. Well, I might even push back on on the concept that these areas are Ukraine or ever really were. You know, we always have to ask the question, which Ukrainians are we talking about when we when we when we use this term? I went to a bar a couple of nights with a, a go with a colleague from RT and the bartender did describe himself as Ukrainian. He told me he was from Lugansk and I told him about my trip to Rubizhnoya, uh, which is a small town in the vicinity of the city of Severodonetsk. Um, and it was totally bombed out. The Severodonetsk itself also totally bombed out. It just looked like the apocalypse had struck. And I spoke in Rubizhnoya with the principal of a high school. And she and another instructor as well described to us what it was like teaching there for the last eight years, the way they were forced to teach that the Ukrainian insurgent army, the UPA, this group that slaughtered hundreds of thousands of Jews and Poles in the 30s and 40s, that these guys were actually liberators in the Second World War. They actually fought on the side of the good guys. Um, this is what they were being forced to teach. If they didn't teach it, they could have lost their jobs. And now this principal told us that for this supposed crime of collaboration, for the crime of continuing her students' education under the government of the Russian Federation-aligned Lugansk People's Republic, she faces 15 years in prison if Zelensky's troops ever come back. And she said she would face another 15 years just for speaking with me, for speaking for somebody who works with Sputnik. And these aren't necessarily idle threats. We saw in this same town, uh, just a couple hours later, we went to a, a separate high school and we saw the wreckage of a school that had been completely obliterated. The locals that we spoke with said that it was destroyed by six U.S. manufactured HIMARS missiles. And this was apparently because some of the people who were organizing that referendum last month that we spoke about were said to have been meeting there. And we walked a few hundred yards away to an apartment building with a massive crater outside that had had all of its windows completely blown out. You could see scorch marks up and down the side of the building. And we asked a 68-year-old woman, this babushka named Natalia, who was apparently the only one still living in this building, we asked her who fired this rocket, and she said, those cursed fascists. And she broke down crying, just immediately describing the kind of hell that her life has turned into now. And, uh, you know, this was very typical of the experiences that we had there. I spoke to her, you know, at, at that moment, we kind of had to take off our journalistic hats and say, you know, this woman is now asking, telling us that she has these basic needs, that she needs to be able to get food and water. And we kind of stopped recording and said, you know what, we're going to go to the humanitarian aid office nearby that's staffed by volunteers from mm. the area. And we explained the situation to them. They pointed out to us a list they had that was full, whole mm -hmm. page full of women, old women. Uh, old men who were in the exact same circumstance, they wanted to come get humanitarian aid, but she had had all of her documents blown up in this mm. explosion that our government sponsored. And, um, you know, this was so typical. So when we talk about Ukrainians, uh, 
arming these Ukrainians. We're not talking about the people in Lugansk. You know, we're not talking about arming this bartender that I spoke with. We're talking about arming these fanatics and we're talking about arming the psychopaths is the only way that I can say who insist on sending people like that to their deaths to fight against the Russian Federation. Wyatt Reed, very, very well said. Really appreciate your time today. Uh, We know that you're continuing to travel. Be safe, and we look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks so much, guys. Folks, you are listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Biden aides tout plunging deficit as Republicans prepare for spending fights. The Biden administration said today that the federal deficit fell in half from the year before as Washington girds for new battles over taxes and spending with interest rates rising and Republicans are expected to take back at least one branch of Congress in the midterm elections. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He holds a Ph.D. in political economy, teaches economics at St. Mary's College in California. He's the author of a number of books, including The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump. He is Dr. Jack Rasmus. As always, Jack, welcome back. My pleasure. So the story here is uh, in a statement, the Treasury Department and and White House uh, Office of OMB said the annual deficit plummeted from $2.8 trillion in 2021 to roughly $1.4 trillion in 2022, a decline driven primarily by the expiration of trillions of pandemic-era emergency spending. Your thoughts, Dr. Jack Rasmus. Yeah, well, there's some truth to the fact that, uh, you know, they cut out all that social spending, that COVID spending, uh, That that's all over. In some cases, they cut it out early, <laughs> you know, uh, earlier than they had to. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, um, they've, they've cut a trillion dollars at least out of that. Uh, the number for uh, last year's, which ends September 30th, by the way, uh, budget uh, deficit was $1.38 trillion, which is down from the COVID year of uh, 2021 of 2.78 trillion. Uh, yeah, okay, so they they cut one one trillion or so off, but you know that's going right back up. I'll tell you why that deficit is going right back up over two trillion, in my opinion, uh, because there's a general econ- economist consensus, even mainstream economists, that uh, we are finally entering a recession, even though we've been in a moderate one already, but we're entering a recession um, uh, and it's going to be significant here in 2023. Uh, Citibank uh, put out a report that said there's a 100% chance that there will be a recession in 2023. So when you have a recession, uh, your um, tax revenues collapse. Your tax revenues collapse, your deficit goes back up significantly. At the same time, next year, they will continue spending on the war in Ukraine. 
and also preparing for a war with, with China. So defense spending is going to go up <laughs> while tax revenues go down. And at the same time, the interest that the Fed is going to have to pay on the debt is not near zero anymore. It's going to be 5 6%. So that number is going up. Those three elements are going to drive the U.S. deficit and therefore the debt up again next year. And with the Republicans in control of both houses of Congress, I predict, uh, guess what's coming? Austerity. They're going to start whacking social programs even more than they have here this past year. So defense spending up, tax revenues down, interest on the debt up attack social spending programs, and deficit goes back up. Dr. Jack, here's what I think is a very bad omen, you know, and I've felt, I'll read the sentence in a second, but I've felt all along Joe Biden being the very conservative Democrat that he is, he's been able to, he's been saying, oh, we can't get anything done, we can't get anything past the Republicans. And once the Republicans get in, suddenly he's going to be able to get something done, working with the Republicans to get, quote, things done. Listen to this. This is Biden. If Republicans get their way, the deficit is going to soar. It sounds to me like Joe Biden is 100 percent on board with austerity. And once the Republicans get in, when they say we need to cut this, that, that and this, he's going to say, oh, yeah, I'm on board with cutting the deficit. And he's going to do the Bill Clinton on us. And they're going to austerity. He's going to be on board 100 percent with austerity. Your thoughts? Yeah, exactly. He's going to agree with them and uh, he'll argue, well, you know, I moderated uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the programs that the Republicans said, you know, were pushing here, which are austerity programs, that's for sure. You know, he's going to look, it's not just Clinton. Uh, what happened with Barack Obama? Yep. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he passed a $787 billion rescue plan in 2009. And then in August 2011, he agrees with the Republican Congress. It was a full Republican Congress, you know, because he lost control of Congress in 2010. He agrees with Republicans to cut social programs by one and a half trillion, twice of what the stimulus was. And then a year later, he agrees with the Republicans to extend the Bush tax cuts, 80% went, went to the wealthy, for another five years at a cost of $5 trillion. It's going to be a repeat here with Mr. Biden. He's going to do the same that Obama did. Uh, and that, that's coming. That's coming. This, is, this always happens after a crisis. You know, they throw off new crumbs at the people. They come and take it back and then some. And uh, that's what we're going to see next year, 2023, austerity. You can see what the capitalist program of austerity really is in the Harbinger case, which is Britain. Same thing happened here, going to happen here in Europe, continental Europe here next year, and then in this country as well. This is what they do. They protect their asset value wealth with monetary policy while they attack social programs and give tax cuts to their, their rich buddies here uh, in the wake of these crises. To your point, GOP to use debt limit to force spending cuts. This is according to House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. He says that if Republicans win control of the House, the GOP will use raising the debt limit 
as leverage to force spending cuts, which would include cuts to Medicare and Social Security and limit additional funding to Ukraine. First of all, Jack, this whole idea of raising the debt limit as leverage, that's not new. They've been playing that game for at least 10 years, it seems. Cutting Medicare and Social Security, I think even Joe Biden secretly or not so secretly has been interested in doing that. And limiting additional funding to Ukraine, that to me sounds as though they're going to just do some very superficial uh, kinds of cuts because I can't see uh, McCarthy turning on Ukraine. I, that to me just that's that's foolish. Yeah, well, as far as talking Social Security, uh, both sides and Biden for many years uh, have been, uh, you know, in agreement on raising significantly the retirement age. You know, they're going to bump that up another year or two and uh, attacking um, SSI, in other words, this disability programs, SSDI, right? Uh, that That's a gone for clu- conclusion. They're going to do that. Uh, but they're going to attack other social programs as well. And they always use the budget deficit, the debt, you know, as, as the hammer uh, to justify that. Uh, as far as the military spending is, is concerned, you know, uh, uh, the empire is reaching and the uh, U.S. empire is reaching a stage where it's getting hard to finance everything that they want. You know, uh, you can't cut too much uh, or you really upset the population, uh, although they'll push that to the hilt. Uh, so they got to decide, are they going to go forward with their massive war preparation plans for China uh, and or up the ante of their contribution uh, in the Ukraine war. Can they do both? Uh, that remains to be seen in the budget where they're going to do more. But you can be sure the defense budget is going to increase. No doubt about it. Uh, they will do some token thing maybe, as you point out, with with the Ukraine uh, uh, spending. Uh, because the U.S. Is, is, is throwing $3 billion a month just at the economy in Ukraine, which is down 50% in GDP terms. And of course, its currency is virtually worthless, right? Uh, plus all that military spending. Uh, they're probably going to try to squeeze uh, Europe to come up with more. Um, uh, but uh, I, I don't. I agree with you. I don't see them pulling back uh, very much on on the Ukraine uh, spending here, which is probably five to ten billion dollars a month right now. Uh, at least that. A lot will depend uh, what McCarthy Republicans do on what the military situation is in Ukraine when they come into office in January. If Ukraine is winning, uh, they're not going to cut anything, you know, and say, oh, you know, they were behind, uh, you know, sabotaging Ukraine. But if Ukraine is clearly losing, which I believe they will start doing by the end early, you know, when when the Russian defensive uh, uh, really kicks in here, if Ukraine is is losing, uh, you know, then you'll start hearing – well, you know, we're throwing good money after bad. We threw a lot and we did all we could. But, uh, you know, Ukraine, Zelensky didn't do their part. It was mismanaged, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and they will uh, put a cap under Ukraine spending. And really quickly, I don't know that limiting additional funding to Ukraine really matters because 
They've locked in these contracts, as we were talking about a couple of days ago in this most recent defense uh, bill that came through. They've locked in the contracts. So as far as Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and Bay Systems are concerned, their money now is guaranteed going forward. So whether they send those systems to Ukraine, China, Taiwan, wherever the heck they send them, or if they just sit in the warehouse, it doesn't matter because now the money's been locked in. Yeah, well, as far as money locked in, you got to remember that's only the first pass. They can pass more. Oh, oh, (laughs) no, no, no. We we know that. But my point is the contracts are now guaranteed is my point. Yeah, but you got to remember uh, this legislation to to take the opposite position here. Uh, what what you uh, actually indicate in a bill is not what gets necessarily authorized, you know, and the, uh, what gets authorized is not actually what is spent. There's a lot of ways they can play with uh, what's in the bill, uh, you know, an appropriations bill in this case. And do you see that happening with the defense spending, Dr. Jack Rasmus? Well, I think uh, defense spending where they're, they're going to continue going full bore against uh, that's China. My, that's the that's yeah, my point. Definitely, yes. they're going to up that probably even more. Uh, and as I said, Ukraine is going to be um, uh, a function of how much they can get the Europeans to throw more into the pot, and uh, also whether uh, you know what what's the situation on the ground in Ukraine. People's Dispatch, soaring cost of living crisis, but Europe on short fuse, the ongoing cost of living crisis and fuel shortage, as well as the failure of governments to handle the crisis has triggered protests by working class and poor sections across Europe. If we could get two things, your thoughts on what's happening in Europe economically, but also as we talk about the future with our deficit and things of that nature, in that Europe is like our number one uh, uh, market that we sell stuff as... um, Europe's market collapses, how that affects our um, industrial output, service output, technical output, et cetera, that they, that they buy, that they're not going to have money to buy. Yeah, well, uh, you know, Europe is uh, in, in very serious straits, far more than the United States here, you know, because uh, it's not just the energy costs uh, that are, you know, escalating. Uh, it's not just corporations trying to protect their their bottom line by raising prices. Uh, it's uh, the collapse of their currencies going on because of U.S. Fed and monetary policy, which is you, you don't see much in the news about Europeans uh, complaining a little bit, you know, here and there about the U.S. Uh, economic policies causing their crisis. It's not just the uh, the sanctions and and the energy. Uh, you know, problem that's that's uh, really debilitating uh, the European economy. It's the U.S. Federal Reserve monetary policy, raising interest rates, the dollar appreciating, and the currencies, whether it's the U.K. or the you know the pound or the EU, collapsing. They're all down more than 20, 25 percent. That means their import prices go up, and that drives up their general price level as well. The U.S. doesn't have that problem. Because the dollar, you know, is lowering inflation, import inflation in the U.S., but the collapse of the European currencies is raising import and general inflation on top of the other forces driving inflation. And that's why uh, the central bank policies, Bank of England, European Central Bank, are going to do very little to abating inflation. That's going to continue. And of course, as the Fed keeps raising rates, that's going to continue collapse of their currencies. 
So they are between a rock and a hard place because of the U.S. war policies and monetary policies. The U.S. is causing that crisis in Europe. But you don't hear much analysis of that. One of the things that I find interesting, particularly in this People's Dispatch story, working class groups who they say are leading these uh, protests, they're demanding an increase to wages and pensions. They're trying to restore the purchasing power, along with caps on fuel and food. Progressives are calling for taxes on excess profits. So I bring this I bring this up to say there are different elements within the French society based upon their economic status that are demanding different demanding, making different demands based upon the impact that this inflation is having upon them. But what is consistent is they're all getting crushed and they're coming into the streets and it's not looking good for European governments. Yes. uh, You know, the working class is getting uh, whacked the worst, uh, as typically it does in these situations. And they're beginning to protest. They're beginning to walk out in France and different places. Uh, uh, And um, you don't hear much about that in the media. Right. They're trying to keep a lid on that because that uh, exacerbates, um, you know, um, Protests and so forth slows down the real economy uh, even more when there are strikes, especially large ones. Uh, uh, but that's going to continue and uh, and worsen over the winter. That's for sure. You can mm-hmm. expect more working class wage demands uh, just to protect themselves, you know, from the decline in their real income. Uh, there's going to be more of that, and that's going to uh, fuel. Uh, political instability in those parliaments over there. We already see some of it, you know, in Italy, uh, and uh, we'll see some of it in the UK, I think, um, because the UK has become uh, uh, Italy North, its economy, <laughs> and its its political system is beginning to look like uh, the Italian system, you know, uh, and it's going to get worse because the uh, you know the elites, the 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 Brit elites are totally bankrupt. Uh, they're fighting amongst each other, and uh, they can't even get um, you know decent candidates. Uh, I even hear uh, you know they're bringing that clown Boris ja- uh, Johnson mm-hmm. maybe back. You know mm-hmm. that's just how desperate and decadent they they become. Uh, the UK is, is the uh, uh, you know the the bad dog of of Europe economy and politics. It's going to get worse. You know, and and then I got to laugh about this so-called special relationship with the U.S. Yeah, so special that the U.S. is uh, screwing uh, the British economy as never before with its rate hikes and its sanctions. And uh, let me ask you this. Do you see I've been thinking this. Do you see a collapse of the pound and or euro and possibly hyperinflation at the rate they're going? To me, it seems almost inevitable. But do you see that coming? we got about a minute and a half. No, I don't see that coming immediately. I, what I see coming is, uh, you know, the bond vigilantes and the cap, finance capitalists have won in Britain. Uh, they've thrown a truss out. They're going to put their person in, whoever he is, is going to be vetted, maybe Ben Wallace, I think. Uh, they're going to put their person in. Uh, the Bank of England's going to raise rates no matter 
how deep the recession goes in in the UK, in Britain. Uh, they're going to protect their asset values of the rich and their capitalists at the expense of the working class. And the real economy has already begun to contract sharply uh, in Britain. Uh, you know, they're, they're just going to... Um, squeeze the hell out of the rest of the populace uh, to protect the uh, assets of, of their rich. And uh, that can go on uh, for some time, I think. Uh, so I don't see anything imminent. Uh, you know, raising the interest rates will, will protect their asset values here um, and mm. slow the decline of the, uh, of the pound currency. Uh, but they're fighting against the U.S. Fed. The more the Fed continues to rise, the more the Bank of England is going to have to continue to raise rates, and the deeper the recession is going to get in Britain. Uh, that's going to go on most of next year. Dr. Jack Rasmus, as always, thank you so much for your time. Folks, go to jackrasmus.com. Go to jackrasmus.com. You'll mess around and learn a whole lot of stuff at drjackrasmus.com. Thanks, Jack. Enjoy the weekend. My pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. U.S. calls for, quote, security mission, end quote, in Haiti. Washington says the operation would be limited and would seek to quell unrest and gang violence on the island. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's the co-chair of the Georgia Green Party, Kwaku Lumumba. As always, Kwaku, welcome back. Glad to be back. Thank you for inviting me. So the U.S. has proposed a security assistance mission in Haiti, calling on foreign partners to contribute personnel and equipment to help end violent anti-government protests, which have blocked off some of the country's main ports and caused major shortages in key goods. U.N. Envoy Linda Thomas-Greenfield floated the idea to the Body Security Council this past Monday, citing a dire humanitarian crisis currently raging in Haiti and a deteriorating security situation. Though she said the project would not directly involve U.N. peacekeepers, she voiced hopes that member states would provide the necessary resources for the mission. Kwaku, a couple of things. The U.S. is calling on this mission to help end anti-government protests. Well, it's the U.S.-backed government that they're protesting. So I don't know the United States sending armed uh, troops to quell it is going to quell it. I think it will only exacerbate the situation. She's talking about a humanitarian crisis that the United States has really been the one to foment. And not directly involving U.N. peacekeepers, well, then why are you at the U.N. doing this unless you're going to the U.N. as a way of circumventing the U.N.? Kwaku Lumumba. You know, this is a really critical time, and I'm glad that we're having this discussion, because what many people in this environment here don't really get to see is that there is another movement, and it's it, it's a movement that preceded the gang um, issue, but it is a movement that is steeped in 
civil disobedience and largely nonviolence. Um, the people who are involved in this movement in IET are not are choosing not to arm themselves with weapons to attack the government and to attack officials. And when they face off with police in these protests, they're facing police who are armed and is shooting tear gas, shooting live ammunition at them. And now the United States and Canada has equipped this police force, which was trained by the most recent UN security uh, or peacekeeping force that had been occupying the island from 2004 to 2017. This police force, this national police force in IET, just recently used this equipment that was sold to the Haitian government um, by the United States and by Canada in order to not attack gangs, but attack unarmed citizens of IET. I was on the phone with a brother this week who was telling me the accounts of how many people had been shot and how terrible this camouflage tank or bulletproof equipment that these police now have have been for them because they're exercising their rights as citizens to uh, civil disobedience, and they're doing so unarmed, but now they're being shot down and they have no recourse to uh, protect themselves or even defend themselves against the police now because the police are armed to the teeth and they're not fighting the gangs. They're trying to suppress the average citizen in IIT. What's interesting is there's a, another interesting article. I'll just bring it up. Daniel Foote, who is Biden's former person um, uh, uh, to Haiti, has is really getting angry. He's hitting the ceilings and he is now actually saying that the reason that he quit was due to Biden's interventionalist um, policies in um, uh, uh, in in Haiti. He said it's a it's a mistake that he opposes it, and it's I I find it interesting. But this guy Daniel Foots really there's an interesting article in the Intercept where he's really saying this is wrong. This is why he quit. It's not going to work, and that it is going to be a disaster. What are your thoughts on that? I agree. Ironically, I agree with um, Daniel Foote. I think the reason why Daniel disagrees with Biden is more about strategy and less about the interests of the Haitian people, though. Mm -hmm. Um, I agree that this will be a disaster for the Haitian people. Um, Daniel may feel like this will be a disaster for the uh, U.S. foreign policy aims and objectives. Um, So we agree, but for different reasons. Now, um, regarding the UN, uh, you had mentioned why it is that they're going to the UN if they're not going to use peacekeepers. Um, I think the issue about peacekeepers is that they realize they're not going to get it through the Security Council right now. Um, so they have to come up with some other way to continue to intervene and try to control the situation in IET, given that they probably won't get through uh, Russia and China at the very least. And with an increase, increasing capacity, from uh, countries in Africa right now that have seats or, co- or coalition seats, I would say, on the Security Council, the likelihood that they'll get the same sort of peacekeeping force approved through the Security Council is uh, very slim. So they have to come up with these contingency plans like sending uh, this equipment that they can sell to the Haitian government so that they can arm the national police. And of course, when, and here's the interesting thing too, and I'll, I'll stop. The, a lot of the gangs end up getting their equipment from the national police reserves. And so they get that either by force or through some other means, but that stuff gets trickled down to the same gangs that supposedly 
the Biden administration wants to attack and stop. Two things. You were very clear that most of the resistance or just about all of the resistance that the Haitians have been putting forth so far has been nonviolent. If the United States, if the Biden administration is successful in sending armed forces to the island, do you believe that that nonviolent resistance will change? And the second question has to do with this gentleman, Jimmy Barbecue Cherizere. And if I did not pronounce that last name correctly, please uh, provide the proper pronunciation. Uh, Your thoughts on him initially, Western media uh, posed him, uh, presented him as a as a as a thug and a and a gang leader. I'm reading in, for example, uh, Haiti Liberté that he's really more of an organizer and an activist. Uh, can you provide any any insight into 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 his politics and and what he is promoting? Yeah. So the I think the short answer to your first question is yes. I think we will start to see a shift if there is a foreign invasion. Because right now, you know, the average Haitian understands that they're fighting against their cousin. And they really don't want to get into a a blood war with their cousins. But if you have foreigners come in, in the same way that you had armed resistance to it when it happened in uh, 100 years ago, when the U.S. sent the Marines in to occupy, I think we'll, you know, we'll in short order see people decide Okay, we're not going to go nonviolent against this force. Mm-hmm. So, um, in regard to your second question, though, the nuances of uh, Jimmy Barbecue Cherizier is it 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 follows a pattern. Um, I'll I'll mention Guy Philippe. Guy Philippe is currently um, incarcerated in the United States. Mm-hmm. He was taken by the DEA just before he was going to be sworn into office because he had won an election to represent um, a district in IET, and he was going to have diplomatic immunity at that point. The reason why the DEA came in and took him before he could get diplomatic immunity is because they were his handlers. The CIA was his handler. Mm -hmm. And this is the same individual who led a supposed coup or did lead a coup against... um, the, the president, uh, Aristide, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, mm-hmm. in 2004. He was a former police officer. He was trained outside of IET by the CIA. He spoke fluent English, and the, the average Haitian didn't know this until afterward. And then he fashioned himself as a revolutionary or an activist, an organizer for the people against um, a government that he felt like didn't represent. And then... We, we see all of the things that have happened since then, and then they decide to go ahead and take him up. Jimmy is a former police officer. Jimmy is someone who is in a gang that is backed by one of the billionaire families in IET and funded by them, uh, the Mevs family. You can look at Yuri Mevs, Gregory Mevs, Fritz Mevs, all of these, billion, these billionaires who run this family and fund it and control the fuel reserves in IET that have been locked up by this gang. And so this is an issue where Barbecue is saying, you guys who are funding me, you aren't giving me my fair share or meeting my demands, so I'm going to hold your resources hostage at the expense of the average Haitian. And so he is not a revolutionary. 
He is not an activist on behalf of the people. He's playing his role. And as soon as, just like we got to see earlier this year um, with Yon Yon, who was taken up by the FBI earlier in May, he was the one, he was the gang leader who had abducted and kidnapped those 17 missionaries. He's also incarcerated in the United States. So as soon as the United States decides that this actor is no longer to their benefit, they'll swoop in with the FBI, the DEA, or the CIA, take him up, and hold him in custody in the United States. So he's not on the side of the average people, even if they don't realize it yet. In a related story that is about imperialism, uh, EU's foreign minister, Joseph, Joseph Burrell, referred to Europe as a garden and, quote, most of the rest of the world is a jungle and the jungle could invade the garden. He also said the gardeners have to go to the jungle. He got a little carried away. Europeans have to be much more engaged with the rest of the world. Otherwise, the rest of the world will invade us. You know, Kwaku, history tells us Exactly the opposite. I don't remember Kwame Nkrumah or Thomas Sankara or any of those saying, hey, let's go invade Spain. It's the other way around. Your thoughts on what I think, I'm glad to hear it, is a very enlightening neocolonialist comment by uh, EU by the EU foreign minister of all people. Kwaku. You know, I, it sounds a lot like the rhetoric of we have to civilize those savages over there. Mm. <laughs> and in order to, you know, it, yeah, yeah. it's a different term, but I, it, it sounds the same to me. It just sounds like, okay, we have to figure out how to civilize the rest of the world. In spite of the fact that he admitted that the European Union came about because they kept fighting each other. So the, the, the Europe does not have a model for the rest of the world for civilization and peace. It's something that they're still trying to figure out among themselves. And so the idea that the rest of the world that is is fighting mainly because they're fighting against the neocolonialism that Europe has set in the rest of the world and that Europe can create peace by stabilizing this neocolonial situation is a blatant contradiction that I, I think he probably realizes but um, just spoke either too too soon or too clearly and um, has to wheel that back. But it's in the atmosphere now, and so we can deal with that on shows like this and conversations like this. But it's clear that these these people in power in the European Union, for the most part, continue to see the rest of the world as the third world that needs to be civilized by them. Uh, Look, I don't think it was in the African country that blew up their pipeline. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so either. (laughs) Uh, let Let me go back to Guy Philippe. And, and you're saying that he was a, a CIA operative um, handled or managed by the DEA. If he was their guy, then why? And I and I, I pose that as a question, not to challenge you in any way, shape or form. Um, if he if he was their guy, then why, when he got to the point of being elected, did they turn on him? Why wouldn't he continue to be their guy? Uh, and I'm asking that so you can explain the the real intricacies of these relationships. Hopefully that makes sense. That's a, that's a beautiful question. It oh, makes okay. absolute sense um, because it takes us to the most recently assassinated president of Haiti, Jovenel Moïse. Oftentimes, puppets will try to cut their strings when they feel like they've gotten enough power and influence to do so. I mean, it's happened before even in Haitian history. Um, and so when you look at uh, Guy Philippe, who was campaigning with Jovenel Moïse, they knew they were puppets. 
but they also had the intention of cutting those strings. So Guy Philippe's step toward cutting those strings would be to get diplomatic immunity. Okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Real quick, real quick. Cutting the strings to feather their own nest or bed or cut the strings to work on behalf of the Haitian people? Great, great uh, follow-up question. So either or. Um, In the case of Guy Philippe, in the case of Aguil Philippe, he hadn't showed any interest in in, in supporting the Haitian people, mm-hmm. um, feathering his own bed. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean people can't change, but he there was no indication that he was changing trajectory to benefit the masses. Okay. With with Jovenel Moise, um, there were some things that could be beneficial that he was working on um, that would have benefited the country. But by and large, he was too green for us to make an assessment if he would have changed somewhere down the line. But he was bucking up against his handlers at the time. Um, he was not following their script. Maybe he was following his own to his own benefit and ultimately to his own detriment. But it, it's something that the United States recognized with Guy Philippe and also has recognized with Jovenel Moise that these puppets could go rogue. And if they go rogue, there's got to be a contingency plan. In the case of Guy Philippe, it was we got you on drug charges because you were trafficking drugs when you were uh, when you were on the police force up in the north, and we've got you on that. We can get you any time, and they did. They also had Jovenel Moise on that. Unfortunately, his his sentence was a lot harsher. He <laughs> he got the death sentence for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know that's that's the consequence of doing these deals as a puppet. They always have something to catch you with if you decide you want to cut your strings. And rarely does somebody cut their strings and actually get to live a long and productive life afterwards. We have we have just 60 seconds. That sounds a lot like Manuel Noriega. Yes. Wow. Well, you said that in two seconds. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and let me say this. With Moise, Jovenel Moise, I think they that part of that was they made, wanted to make an example out of him for anybody who sat in that seat in the future to let him know. 30 seconds. Absolutely. You know, those kind of, that, that sends a loud message, especially because no one has faced justice for his assassination. And so it, it's, it's going to linger there and they're going to hang this out there. So, OK, whoever the next person is, whether it's Ariel Henry or anyone after him, you are a puppet of our state. Make sure you don't get out of line or this could happen to you and yours. Kweku Lumumba, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis, and that was some serious analysis. We look forward to having you back. Look forward to it as well. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. According to Common Dreams, protests in 40-plus cities demand de-escalation as polls shows surging fear of nuclear war within the United States. Quote, anyone paying attention should be worried about the rising dangers of nuclear war, but what we really need is action. For insight into this, let's turn to our first panel. It is Friday, 
That means it's panel time. We're joined by the national organizer for the Black Alliance for Peace and editor and contributing columnist for the Black Agenda Report and the Green Party candidate for vice president of the United States in 2016, Ajamu Baraka. As always, welcome back. Good to be here. Thank you. We're also joined by a diverse communications professional with a background in leading communications departments. He's a communications professor and a TV news correspondent for numerous networks domestically and internationally. Dr. Colin Campbell, as always, welcome back. Great to be back, gentlemen. So, uh, Ajamu, let's start with you. This new poll showed that Americans' fear of nuclear war has steadily grown since the Russian intervention in Ukraine. Uh, anti-nuclear campaigners called on federal lawmakers to take action to mitigate those fears and ensure the U.S. is doing all it can to de-escalate tensions. But it seems as though the United States is the one that's fanning the flames, that is, uh, with all this jingoistic, uh, saber-rattling nuclear dialogue, Ajamu Baraka. Well, that seems to be the case, um, but it's it's really um, it's really interesting that these numbers are starting to indicate that there's more awareness of of the danger of this ongoing Ukrainian conflict, because if you just uh, depended on the mainstream corporate press, uh, you wouldn't think that there was any anxiety at all among the public, um, uh, and so it shows that. Not only is there some concerns with the public, but also concerns also demonstrates the, the, the extent to which the narrative around the conflict has been uh, controlled uh, by the corporate media. So if, if this if it's true, I suspect that this poll is, is, is accurate, um, it really would be valuable if the policymakers in D.C., uh, understood that the support for the Ukrainian conflict uh, is going to begin to uh, wane as a consequence of these concerns. Uh, and perhaps that might result in the kind of pressure that uh, will, uh, along with the economic contradictions, that might result in a, uh, a alteration of, of U.S. policy regarding Ukraine. Dr. Colin Campbell. I think what the Biden administration has been doing in its dance to try to uh, bring awareness to the public in some ways and then downplay things in other ways has contributed to this feeling that there could be a, a stretch of imminence to any kind of nuclear conflict. And I think that you know, of course, we saw these protests happen a few days ago in accordance with the chronology of the Cuban Missile Crisis and, of course, brought awareness about what happened during that time and how there was a it seemed like we were on the brink of a major conflict. And what I believe that there are some academicians and researchers or and lawmakers out there want to do is at least introduce these scenarios to show that what's happening uh, between Russia and Ukraine shouldn't be taken lightly. At the same time, however, they are aware that U.S. military intelligence doesn't really have any strong evidence or any evidence that really alludes to the fact that Russia really intends to use nuclear weapons. So there's that dance of 
you know, this Terpsichorean dynamic of being between what could happen and what they think is going to happen and then what will most likely happen. And I think that's definitely something that they're contending with here. But we have to look at the, the administration's um, political proclivities as well. They're trying to raise money. They are trying to get people to vote for them uh, in upcoming elections. So if they call attention to what could be perceived as urgency, then you have the attention of those who might be a little bit more phlegmatic when it comes to their approach for voting. But if you have, if you, you don't talk about it, there is no awareness, and then they feel like that sense of urgency will be diminished. So I think that's what, what's happening here. Uh, again, U.S. military has not said definitively that that's what Russia wants to do. But here we have the president talking about it. Again, you do have the salience of the time. And so with this confluence of dynamics, we're, we're hearing this talk. And, of course, you, you hear anti-war groups stepping out and saying, listen, we want no part of this. We don't want nuclear war. Let's try to do everything we can to prevent this from happening, even though there's no concrete evidence that Russia is saying that is what is going to take place. And uh, Ajamu, to that last point, there is no concrete evidence. What's amazing to me is from all that I have been able to read that it was Tony Blinken that in that first injected the nuclear conversation into the circumstance back in August. And all Putin has done is warn the United States, you're not going to punk me. You're not going to play me. And remember, I got them, too. So if you think you can stand here and flex, well, then understand what the response will be, not what the aggression will be, but what our response will be to your aggression. And that gets flipped into, look, Russia's playing the nuclear game. It's been absolutely amazing how, how uh, I mean, the ease in which they, in fact, flip that, that, that scenario and the, and the chronology of, of that conversation. Um, and because of the ease in which uh, it was flipped, it really generated, I think, uh, real uh, anxiety among uh, among the Russian, the Russian Federation, because they are very well aware of the fact that there are uh, the U.S. has basically really not renounced a first strike policy. That there are. Uh, 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 members of the foreign policy community that have been advocating for a while uh, that uh, the U.S. could, in fact, pull off a first strike. Um, and so what the Russian Federation uh, is looking at is what appears or could appear to be a, a conditioning of the public to, in fact, justify a, a first strike. Now, I don't think that is 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 uh, irrational and 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 amateurist as the Biden administration is. I don't think that 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 position of of trying of launching a first strike against Russia is as a uh, is a serious one yet. But uh, they have they haven't done a lot to to damp down on that conversation. They finally did recently after some elements of the intelligence uh, community. And I think sort of uh, raise a red flag about about that conversation. But the the result of it has been that that uh, more and more uh, members of the public 
are now concerned about this conflict where, you know, there was significant support for of the, the stated goals of a military victory on the part of the U.S. Uh, and, and NATO forces. So, you know, by playing with this, this, this issue, they have, in fact, in, 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 a, in another example of, of incompetence, uh, generated uh, uh, opposition to their policies that will and, and has already started to uh, uh, show the effect where uh, they are in a, in a less uh, powerful position in terms of trying to maintain the line on the continued support uh, for Zelensky and the, and the war in Ukraine. Dr. Campbell, I'd, I'd like to uh, another comment. I'd like something I'd like to comment you on, and uh, comment on, and that is, we're having a discussion about build, you know, a, uh, anti-war people coming out, uh, uh, you know, opposing this, pushing back. But here's the thing, and you know, we hear this question: What has happened to the anti-war movement in the United States during the, you know, pre-Iraq War? I was here in D.C. There were hundreds of thousands. There's been a strong, robust anti-war movement, and to keep our, particularly this country, healthy, we need an anti-war community to continue to push back against the neocons, and that seems to evaporate it. Your thoughts on the anti-war movement, the state of the anti-war movement in the United States, or the lack thereof, Dr. Campbell? Well, you have to look at what's been happening in the past few years. Uh, we had a former president who really was on an America first policy, right? He uh, did not try to ramp up war. Um, in fact, he, ta- he spoke openly about not wanting to do that and committing more U.S. troops uh, to contribute to U.S. imperialism around the world. At the same time, we saw during the winding down of our uh, occupation in Afghanistan uh, come to a close, although, yeah, it was definitely not a, a pretty one uh, on how it went down and how it concluded. But the, the fact remains is that there has been this uh, at least ostensible de-escalation of U.S. incursion into other countries and the uh, commitment or the encouragement to foment wars in other countries. So that feeling or that attitude that we're on the brink of war, that we are trying to uh, encourage war, initiate war, that type of feeling is not at the top of most Americans' minds. What they do know is that Russia and Ukraine are involved in a conflict and a war. We are helping out Ukraine, but because that has been pretty specific to those two countries and that it really has not uh, affected NATO allies that much, and there hasn't been a discussion of it affecting NATO allies, the uh, the prognostication of war happening uh, in the U.S. Uh, and, and for us to increase our involvement in war is not going to happen anytime soon. Now, that's why you hear the president talking about the possibility, even though other uh, world leaders are not quick to embrace the president's words, he seems to sometimes hyperbolize certain situations. Uh, we have to remember that he called uh, Putin a butcher uh, earlier this year, that the White House and other officials kind of had to walk back. So he kind of pushes that boundary a little bit about how he characterizes Putin, how he, um, you know, what he feels that Putin's intentions are. At the same time, he's at least putting that conversation into the zeitgeist. We also have 
the issues that are that Americans are facing domestically. Right. You have people that are are really concerned about inflation right now, the cost of fuel right now. And of course, this is part of that dizzying uh, activity that people are engaged in because of all the things that are happening around them that are impacting them on a quotidian basis. So to go out and and to protest and to march, you know, in a kind of an anti-war, anti-nuclear campaign, it's not going to be as robust when the feeling is that we aren't involved in a war directly, that we're not that close to being involved in a war, at least not uh, as we were in past years, Persian Gulf, Iraq, Afghanistan. That So that desire, that, 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 that passion to get people out into the streets is going to be a bit differently. Now, say uh, Russia were to hit a a NATO ally and and President Biden ramped up this saber-rattling speech. We might see more conviction from other Americans to say, we need to get out there and stop and and be more vocal about impending uh, deleterious conditions. But I just don't think that Americans feel that that urgency is there right now. Ajamo would love to get your take on the on Garland's question about where is the uh, the U.S. anti-war movement, and just to and a quick response to something that Dr. Campbell just said. It's amazing to me how he was, uh, as Colin was was saying a number of things that Biden was saying about President Putin. There's no interest in telling the truth. There's there uh, when when you when you listen to CNN, when you listen to MSNBC, when you read The Washington Post, it's really, really hard to find anybody that's interested in telling the truth. Well, you know, and that's that's part of the of the challenge and, and part of the, the explanation for why the anti-war movement has been been so weak in the U.S., and that is that the the grip that the neoliberal right um, has on the communication channels is so tight um, that that there's no they don't allow any conversation and definitely no debate um, around the the predominant uh, lines coming from the state. There's no separation between. Uh, uh, state propaganda and the disseminators of state propaganda, which are the private corporations, big tech, uh, and the six, five or six uh, corporations that control most of the news and information uh, in this country. Uh, therefore, the kind of anxiety, the kinds of questions that people have regarding Ukraine um, uh, never reached the surface. I think that, that people, uh, there are more people than we, I think, tend to to um, acknowledge or, or understand that have been quite concerned about this conflict, especially when it became clear that the cost of the conflict uh, had been shifted uh, to the, the the backs of of the uh, U.S. workers, the the inflation. Uh, and the uh, the rise in fuel prices and food, um, you know, while the energy companies and the military-industrial complex were making record profits, you know, there was real concerns. But you wouldn't know that uh, by just you know, consuming the the corporate media. So, 
you know, that's been one of the difficulties in terms of the of the anti-war movement, because the anti-war movement exists in the U.S. But when we have our activities, who knows about it? This week, for example, is a national week of action organized by the largest anti-war coalition uh, uh, in the country, the United National Anti-War Coalition. The Black Alliance for Peace is a part of that uh, with activities in like 70 different cities. Who knows about it? Will it be covered? Of course not. But you're going to have a demo in in Moscow uh, with uh, several hundred people, and it gets uh, globally, but it gets uh, disseminated uh, across the Western world. So we are in in this intense propaganda war uh, that uh, we are at a very distinct disadvantage uh, of. So it ain't it's not like the the, the anti war movement doesn't doesn't exist. Uh, we are, are are severely constrained by the new realities, this tightening of uh, and the increased power of the of the neoliberal fascists uh, that control the U.S. state. Common Dreams uh, reports imminent danger, millions set to lose Medicaid food be- food benefits once public health emergency ends. In less than three months, millions of people across the U.S. could be kicked off Medicaid and see their bo- food benefits slashed if the Biden administration declines to further extend the federal, federal public health emergency. We'll start with you. Your thoughts on this, Dr. Campbell. Yeah, this is a very dire situation that a lot of Americans are facing, obviously. You know, we're moving into the colder months, and uh, there are a lot of people who have already expressed their concerns and a lot of Americans who are already very uh, worried about the condition that they'll be in uh, once winter sets in. We've seen rises in homelessness in various cities across the country. We've seen the uh, the augmentation of tent cities. Uh, we know that crime has also increased in certain areas that uh, lawmakers are saying are in connection with the rise in homelessness. And I believe that as uh, the weeks go by and the end of the year draws near, you will find that th- that the nervousness and anxiety will increase as there will be questions as to whether people will get the basic services and have access to the resources that they need as the costs of virtually everything has continued to rise. Um, again, this is uh, even something here you talk, you hear about in D.C. that's now becoming a regular conversation on evening newscasts about the rising costs people having fears about their futures and, of course, as we always talk about towards the end of the year, what their holidays are going to look like. Ajamu. You know, what's really interesting about this is uh, not that the, there's that possibility of these, uh, of, of this this dire situation that the workers are facing becoming even more dire, but there's been so little mobilization uh, to preempt that, here you have across the even the Western world uh, demos, uh, people going to the streets, uh, uh, protesting state policies uh, and economic policy, private sector economic policies that have resulted in uh, the the undermining of people's lifestyle and and their basic ability to survive, taking place across the Western world, but in the U.S. There's relative, relative silence. There's no mobilization. 
and, and, and part of that, 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 that one can, can use to explain that is the fact that you have the social movements in the U.S. that have aligned themselves as junior partners to the neoliberal Democrat Party fascists. And they have disarmed themselves politically and ideologically. So there has to be more than just an analysis that talks about, you know, that it's going to be a difficult situation. We've got to figure out how, you know, why is, is it that we don't have resistance? Because the only way in which we can preempt these deleterious situations developing vis-a-vis the working class is we have to have more power situated in the hands of the organized and conscious working class in this country. And that is not happening. It's related to the question we just talked about in terms of the, the anti-war movement also, that, you know, the, the, this, this fascist grip on information and, and, and analysis uh, being exercised by this, this uh, settler colonial state, you know, is such that uh, uh, it is difficult to, 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 to organize an effective opposition to these, uh, these, these backward capitalist policies. Around the world in 60 days, the OAS and Guaido's death knell, the opposition leader's international recognition charade no longer holds, even in Washington-aligned forums. Uh, Colin Campbell, uh, your thoughts on how this whole Juan Guaido fiasco has just uh, dissolved into the Ethernet? Well, I can't say that it wasn't predicted or that a lot of people didn't think that it was going to happen or anything like that. We had a president of a country who really was just there, who was just there almost by name only. He has the support of several countries, mainly the United States, to have uh, this role. But it's really Maduro, you know, it's sort of political opposition there who has the real power, who's backed by the military of that country. So when you think about how Guaido's support or his influence has dwindled um, over the past weeks and months, it's really not that surprising because they, Venezuelans, are getting the idea of who has the real power in the country. So I, I really don't know how this will end for Venezuela. Uh, we do know that Guaido continues to speak out, um, continues to condemn Maduro, um, and really encourages the support of, of nations who, who are backing him, but that can only last for so long. Uh, and so it's really questionable how Venezuela will move forward uh, because their leader, uh, who's supported by the West, is not really the one in the most powerfully influential position to make determinants about the future of the country. Ajamu Baraka, it seems as though the out, the the sand has run out of Guaido's hourglass. Well, look, it, it, the, the, it was fraudulent from the very beginning. There was never any debate within Venezuela regarding uh, Guaido's standing. We're talking about an individual who has something like 3% of the population that's supporting him. Uh, so he was always a, uh, a uh, paper tiger. A insult. <laughs> Paper Tiger and an insult to the intelligence of people outside of Venezuela that this is in any way any kind of debate, that the, he represented any kind of real oppositional forces. And now the trade is basically over. Um, and the U.S. is, for example, they are 
attempting to try to uh, reconcile to a certain extent with with Maduro because they now need Venezuela oil to enter back into the international market. So he, like so many others that have been you that that are that have been at the service of the Western world and the U.S. in particular, once they finish with you, then they they toss you. So it's not even really a real story anymore because basically there's no debate in terms of of how Venezuela is going to go forward because Guaido has not represented any significant political force inside the country at all. Uh, there's an opposition in Venezuela, no question about that, uh, but that opposition itself even separated themselves from uh, Juan Guaido. So he has a, he has a problem, uh, especially now that there's uh, serious allegations of mis, uh, misappropriation of, of those funds that the West stole from the Venezuelan state and put in his hands. And I'll end up by saying this, you know, when I was in Venezuela and I met with the opposition forces and um, some leaders from some of the opposition parties, and they were basically gotten to the point where they said, look, the sanctions are hurting us too. So now you've got the opposition saying to the U.S., we don't want the sanctions anymore because it's hurting us too. And it's kind of this, the whole thing has collapsed. And now the only question, I guess, is how does the U.S. get out of it? Because they need oil bad. You calling? Well, we got about 30, yeah. 45 seconds. Yeah, I mean, with the election that's scheduled to come up in a couple of years, I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's something may happen even before that time where Venezuela will devolve even from the current, uh, you know, fallen state as some would, would characterize it is right now. So we'll have to wait and see. But yeah, it was only a matter of time before there would be some kind of devolution to uh, Guaido's status and his uh, his, his position as a uh, leader of that country by view and framing of the U.S. and other Western allied states. Ajama, we have just about a, about a minute 30. Uh, but looking at the fact that the economy is growing, has been growing quite rapidly, and we know now with the development of relationships between uh, Venezuela and Iran, Venezuela and Russia, that uh, it looks like Maduro is on the right trajectory. We got one minute. The, the Venezuelan people are on the right uh, trajectory. Yes, they they have survived the the effort to undermine their their project, um, and they have uh, come out of this even stronger than before. Their institutions, the will of the people, uh, uh, and so they they are going to prevail and they're going to be strengthened. And b- through that process, the entire region will be much stronger as a consequence. Gentlemen, thank you both so much. Ajamu Baraka, Dr. Colin Campbell, enjoy your weekends. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Look forward to returning. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Saker has a piece entitled Nord Stream, 
Currencies and credibility go bust for EU liberalism. There's no more obvious failure of Europe's politicians to protect their own citizens than the drop in the euro and pound to below parity and near parity, respectively, with the U.S. dollar. However, this article was planned before the brazen sabotage of the Russian-German Nord Stream gas pipelines, which almost impossibly outranks the currency's collapse. What are we to make of all of this? Well, it's Friday, so that means it's panel time. We're turning to our second panel. We're joined by the national organizer with uh, action for Assange, Steve Poikinen. As always, Steve, welcome back. Great to be here. Thank you very much. We're also joined by a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch. He's the author of Let Roe Go, Winning Abortion Rights, Jim Cavanaugh. Dr. Jim Cavanaugh, as always, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So let's start with you, Steve. The uh, Sakers piece uh, continues. The two seismic events actually dovetail perfectly. Both illustrate the absolute failure of Western liberal democracy for everyone but the Western 1%. Why would anyone interested in the theory of governance uh, treat the above as hot news? Western leadership may have infinite personal faults and a bottomless appetite for blood and treasure, but their instability is so endemic so as to be clearly structural, Steve Poikinen. This is, this is a fantastic piece, first of all. And I wasn't familiar with the website, but the the overall the overall I, delineation of uh, what looks like self sabotage <laughs> <laughs> uh, on the part of the West is starting to look more and more like a controlled demolition. And when you've got when you've got moves as blatantly stupid as the you know intentional collapse of currency, the fact that we've got uh, in, in a couple of different cases, parity with the U.S. dollar, as the U.S. dollar is growing stronger, ought to be sending flashing neon signs to everyone in the EU, everyone who's about to to realize that they need to break free from the EU, um, that the not just their leaders or their paymasters in the West uh, don't care about them, but that they are completely willing to let them free-starve and die so that they can squeeze a little bit more out of them. It, it's been, it's been a, I mean, it's, uncomfortably fascinating process to watch play out for the last several months. Dr. Jim Cavanaugh. Yeah, well, let's credit Ramin Mazahiri, who wrote, who wrote this, you know, for the sake of blog, who was an Iranian commentator, I believe. And, uh, you know, he goes beyond this issue of currency collapse and, you know, to the, make the point that, that the so-called uh, leaders of nations in Europe you know, are represent not the nations, but the one percent, the elites, and that the reason they do these things that go against the interests of their own population is because it's a it's an alliance of elites led by the United States, whose job is not just to uh, maintain the supremacy of the United States as a nation, but to maintain elite ruling class capitalist rule in every country and to be the backstop of that. And that's why they do things that, you know, are in contradiction with the needs of their own population. And it's a very smart uh, article that he wrote, and it's very interesting, and I recommend it. And what he's saying is absolutely true. We're seeing 
that uh, the social dem- the social democracy that was Europe uh, post World War II Europe has in the last 20 30 years been co-opted entirely towards neoliberalism and the social democratic parties have become you know neoliberal uh, architects and this is destroying what was you know a pole of attraction of social democracy in Europe and it's gone to, it's gotten to the point now where the european elites represented by people like macron you know, uh, are are working against the interests, the immediate material interests of their own people. As I say, freezing and starving is what, what's on what's in uh, what's online for you guys this this winter and for your for, our, for the people. But you know, we'll be okay. We know these people; they're going to be okay. It's flying around their private jets. So it's a it's an important point and on a lot of levels. You know, the failure and the surrender of European democracy to neoliberalism, and the fact that what we're looking at is a cabal of the ruling classes of Europe and the United States to maintain, uh, and, and, and the ruling classes of Europe have to be, because the more powerful ruling class is that of the United States. And their ruling classes will be protected anyway, their wealth will be maintained, but they have to obey essentially the big dog, which is the United States in uh, you know, keeping the hegemony, even though what the United States is doing is impoverishing their countries in order to maintain, not to allow the rise of countries like your, uh, Russia and China. Here's an, uh, another, I think, interesting part of the article, but I'm going to first by reading, I'm going to first start by reading the title of an article from January 27, 2022, before this conflict started. Fox News, State Department vows Nord Stream 2 will be a, quote, hunk of metal at the bottom of the ocean, if Russia invades Ukraine, State Department says ball is in Putin's court. So let's go back to this article. They go on to say it's hard to imagine a more naked escalation of the eight year conflict than the destruction of the Nord Stream 2. There was no outrage over Nord Stream, which may be the biggest proof that they were behind the sabotage. Well, I think the title of that article is kind of pretty strong evidence, too. The United States has literally attacked its so-called allies that doesn't have allies. And what's interesting is, here's what we heard. Uh, Trump has messed up our, screwed up our relationship with Europeans. Joe Biden's back. If you remember, when he got when he got elected, the Europeans were celebrating that Biden's back in town, normalcy's back. I got a feeling they ain't celebrating so much anymore. And if they do, they'll have a lot of ice for their drinks. Steve Poikinen. <laughs> I mean, it is. It's just, it's, and, you know, night is day, day is night, ups, down. Everything that people were sold, not just about Biden, the candidate, but a potential Biden administration, what a return to normalcy. I was talking about this on the show this morning. I had to go to uh, Santa Cruz the Saturday after the election, and there was a boomer parade that was going downtown through Santa Cruz and there were signs on the back of, of high bridges that said, let the healing begin. And they were serious. It was unironic. This was a thing that really happened. I took pictures of it. it, it the, the reality has been a complete financial economic nightmare for the vast majority of the world soaring inflation people in europe are paying 800 percent more than they were paying for their electric bills when it comes to the destruction of the Nord stream we've got u.s officials on record from the time it was getting built saying i can't wait to blow a hole in this 
This is, it's been a prized target for a decade. So I, I, the idea that the U.S. wasn't at least partially responsible for funding, organizing, or planning this operation, whether it was you know the Polish or whoever officially quote unquote did it, is ridiculous. And I don't, I don't, um, I don't see any. Well, I guess that's why they're not trying to talk about it because they can't make an argument for it. Except, uh, uh, Dr. Kavanaugh, I think they did find a, a U.S. drone at the bottom of the Baltic Sea under the under under the thing. Um, Dr. Jim Kavanaugh. Years. Yeah, that was a few years back. So it doesn't count. <laughs> they were just practicing. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, look, it, 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 Newland said, if Russia invades Ukraine one way or another, Nord Stream 2 will not move forward. Biden said, we will stop it one way or another. This article from the Post. So, you know, and it's clear. Look, there are there are two issues. There are two sides in this conflict. One is the Russian side, and one is the U.S. NATO side. There's no third party that came in to do to blow this up for in order to kind of prank everybody for the hell of it. You know, one or another side of this do it. There's no plausible case that the Russian side did it, so they don't talk about it. This is what's amazing. It leads to the other thing we're saying, but you know, they just forget about it. If this had, if they knew the Russians were any 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 way they could do anything to make a case of the Russians, they never stopped talking about it. This is an attack on the European energy infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this was a European uh, project. The Germans wanted it. Angela Merkel argued with Reagan about it, so we're going to do this. Trump was against it, railed against it. Biden is coming in, and I remember in New York. The Upper West Side, they were dancing in the streets the day after the election because Biden was going to save us. Biden is essentially maintaining the same consistency, uh, consistent ruling class foreign policy that Trump did. Trump, who armed Ukraine and was had more put more sanctions on Russia than anybody, you know. Uh, and so this is part of, you know, the, a strategy and uh, 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 to control and isolate and at the end of the day, dismember Russia that's been in place for at least 20 years. Well, we do know this. We know that Sweden won't share the results of their Nord Stream investigation. And we know that Sweden also won't allow Russia to be involved in the in the uh, in the investigation because I think they're afraid if that what well, who was it that said if they released the information Garland it would cause an, it would, it would jeopardize net. national security was it Sweden or was it Germany both I think okay both, all right both of them. Yeah. okay both of them all right which leads me to believe if 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 it was Russia they couldn't scream it loud enough well that's fast what Jim enough. just said that they they'd be they'd be breaking into this show to <laughs> to, 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 to broadcast that news. Um, interesting piece, an, another very interesting piece. The neocons and the woke left are joining hands and leading us to woke war three. David Sachs writes, Elon Musk got in hot water again on Twitter for proposing peace. On Monday, he proposed a peace deal to end the war in Ukraine, for which he was denounced as a pro-Putin puppet by the Twitter mob that has formed to police the discourse on all things related to Ukraine. And it's it's very interesting, Steve, that now you've got General Milley saying, oh, we need peace. You've got— uh, oh, That was Admiral Mullen. Admiral, Admiral Mullen. Mullen. No, but M- M- Milley said the Milley same said thing. Milley said it, too? Milley said yeah, the same well, thing. That's weird. Um, and you've uh, got Henry Kissinger to the left of— Joe Biden on this issue, and when Henry Kissinger is to the left of the Democrats, 
That speaks volumes, Steve Poikinen. I, it is amazing to watch the reaction anytime someone suggests anything other than complete and total annihilation of the entire state of Russia, the entire nation of Russia. That that is somehow out of bounds. It is this is worse, gentlemen, to me at least, than the uh, the sentiment about six months after the twin towers went down where if you weren't screaming for the head of any one of, you know, vaguely Arabic descent, you were somehow unpatriotic. Here we've got people who are merely suggesting, and in, in Elon's case, you know, um, he's trying to protect multiple international investments. And I kind of feel like on the one hand, yes, the reaction is hyperbolic and ridiculous and emblematic of the fact that the Democrats are a death cult now. Uh, but at the same time, this led to a couple of very good turns for Elon in that they attacked him for his statement. And he said, well, Starlink's talked to me about 20 mil a month. Uh, and uh, that free service agreement, that might be running out. Mm-hmm. Uh so he got to say that. And at the same time, they're now the White House is considering intervening in the Twitter deal because they're looking at Twitter as a national security asset, <laughs> which should bear any conversation that that's a social media company forever. It should bear or a private organization. But they, they are. So it led to him potentially getting out of losing 30 million dollars uh, on the Twitter deal, too. <laughs> Dr. Kavanaugh. Yeah, well, you know, I hate that they call us the woke left. It's it's whatever it is, the, the woke brigade, you know, which in the American tribal blue-red context is the, 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 the blue brigade, I guess, and calls itself the left. But, you know, it, what he's, the point he's making in the article is that it's exactly, it's become anathema to ask questions or, or propose solutions or, you know, propose alternatives. Look, it was Obama who said, and he come out. He came out again yesterday and said, you know, we've got to be careful about what we can and cannot do in Ukraine, and what we have to be willing to go to war for. And he said that when he said that in 2015-16, everybody, you know, laughed at at uh, uh, Romney for you know bringing back the 90s, et cetera. And uh, that was a reasonable statement. Now you can't say anything like that uh, without being. You know, for uh, anathematized by Twitter, by the Twitter mob, and this goes for a lot of other things. You know that you can't even have the conversations, and they create a narrative and they police it incredibly strongly. As he says in this, that what they do, what they do is narrow the Overton window. They create a narrative that narrows the Overton window more and more, and uh, they police it, you know, relentlessly. And anybody who raises a skepticism or an issue or an alternative becomes a, tra- a traitor or anti-scientific or a Putin puppet or whatever it is. It's been going on for a long time and it's getting worse and worse. COVID. Uh, well, there's a, there's a, there's a, what's going on now is there seems to be some serious moves to try to work on the origin of COVID 
in the context of that, let me just read this. Professor Jeffrey Sachs, he was the chair of the Lancet's COVID-19 commission, and he says he's pretty convinced that COVID-19 came out of lab, U.S. lab biotechnology and warns, and here's the big thing, that there is dangerous virus research taking place without public oversight. The reason we need to know where it came from is so we don't get part two, which seems to be lurking in a Boston University laboratory even as we speak. But let me throw this at you. I've been watching um, a lot of Dr. Jeffrey, Jeffrey Sachs' interviews lately, and one of the things that he said is his research tells him that it appears that this thing some way, shape, or form escaped from a virus in August or September of 2020. Okay. Here's an article from September, 2019, excuse me. Here's an article from September of 2019. Trump signs executive order to improve flu vaccines. President Donald Trump issued an executive order directing the, the, the HHS to overhaul seasonal flu vaccines. And when you go down it a little bit further, it says... Many of the vaccines today we use today are produced overseas using time-consuming egg-based technology, which limits their effectiveness and makes production too slow to effectively combat a potential deadly influenza pandemic. So in September, at exactly the time that secret that excuse me, that Jeffrey Sachs said he believed that COVID escaped from a lab. They were talking in the White House about a potential deadly influenza pandemic. It sounds like a smoking gun. We'll start with you, Jim Cavanaugh. Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't know what, what the relationship between those things is, but it certainly sounds suspicious. But, you know, when you read that this article about uh, Trump signing this thing, it's about the goal is overhauling flu vaccine production to reduce reliance on time-consuming egg-based vaccine production, improving, uh, making it easier to quickly, again, the speed of science here, get these these vaccines to market. You know, they don't want to delay the vaccine production by a few weeks. And what's interesting is just before this, Fauci, in a conference, I have a a video of it, a clip of it in in my last article on Fauci, you know, is in this conference where he's talking precisely about people that say they want to push this mRNA production. And Fauci says, you know, the problem is we have tried and true methods with this egg-based production. And what we know is if we try to do it a different way, this is what you have to do to make sure a vaccine is safe and effective. And he goes on to say why it will take at least 10 years to make sure a vaccine is safe and effective. And then someone else says, yeah, but maybe if we got some kind of event like a Pearl Harbor type that literally said, you know, bird flu that came out of China and was then maybe we could then push the vac- get, get the vaccine production and push the process of approval faster. So this is all part, whatever this relationship is to the uh, what happened in, in the lab in Wuhan, this is part of what Fauci wanted. Fauci wanted his dream has always been a universal flu vaccine. And they were pushing to create, to undermine what was the tried and true process of creating safe and effective vaccines and make it possible to get vaccines to the market faster, to speed up the speed of science so that they could create vaccines faster. So this was all part of that. And it meshes together with what happened with COVID. And it meshes together with, you know, what uh, Saxon, not only Sachs is saying is 
uh, was a probable precisely, oh, we got this, uh, this flu vaccine, this bird vaccine or the bat vaccine that emerged, SARS vaccine that emerged from China and it's killing everybody in the world. And we're going to do something very quickly. We can't wait three or four weeks. We can't wait 10. We can't wait 10 years. We can't wait three or four weeks. So that's what this was all about one, one way or another. You know, what's interesting also when you read what Sachs said, Steve, is the uh, and to me, this is also a smoking gun. The U.S., the CDC, wouldn't cooperate. This guy's saying, I am chairing a commission to find the origin of COVID. Hey, what info you got? They lied to him. They hid stuff. He asked them for documentation. They gave him 295 pages. Every line was blacked out. They were just in empty black page, empty pages of stuff. So it's like... Well, if you not, inv- I would think the U.S. government would say, yeah, we got to find out. Clearly, they didn't want to find out for some reason, Steve. There, there's multiple reasons <laughs> that they didn't want to find out. The clip that Jim's talking about is from the Milken Institute. The person who interjects the Pearl Harbor theory is uh, Peter Dazak from EcoHealth Alliance. The name that you might be familiar with. Oh, geez. With. <laughs> um, aren't they the ones that were doing the gain of function research? Yes, sir. Um, the, the, that, that clip has been banned <laughs> so many different times. Uh, it, it, yeah, it's fascinating. At the same time, September uh, of 2019, there were a couple of other dovetailing events that were taking place. One was called Event 201. It was a simulated exercise on how to largely turn the planet into a post-pandemic surveillance-based police state. Uh, There was another event that was the military Olympic Games uh, in Wuhan, China, um, which is uh, one of the suggested points of release. Uh, There uh, was also, at the beginning of 2019, in February, there was a uh, multiple military joint exercise called Crimson Contagion, which was about what would happen if a new strain of influenza broke out and spread all over the planet. Um, the, these, these types of simulated exercises have gone on for a very long time. The first one that we really know about was called Dark Winter back in 2001, about a month before September 11th, and it was about a simulated anthrax outbreak. Um, Golly, how things play out. Uh, but I, these are all, I did, you know, CDC and world governments and um, joint chief staff, all that kind of stuff. The, this is what they do, and this is what they gain for, which should beg the question, if they had already gained out a, a, post, a pandemic response, why then was the pandemic response that we experienced so counterintuitive to every single clear-headed medical decision that needed to be made along the way? That is a a very good question. I am not going to try to posit an answer, <laughs> but let me, let me ask Jim Cavanaugh, and then, uh, Steve, I'll ask you the same question. So what do you say to those listening to this conversation who say, oh, my goodness, the United States government would never do something like this. They want to stick with the Donald Trump uh, China Wuhan narrative. Uh, 
Jim Cavanaugh, what do you say to those who would say, oh, you're just a conspiracy theorist? Well, uh, you know, it's it's bizarre to me that the right wing is blaming China for this. I mean, China was part of it, but this this, this was an American Chinese <laughs> cooperative adventure. You know, this was funded by Fauci and by the NIH and by the United States and Echo Health Alliance in North Carolina and Texas. And said, you know, this, this was not a Chinese venture. This was a, whoever was involved in this. And it's not a. I mean, there's no nothing hidden about the conspiracy, the fact that these scientists were planning to get together and create new, vac- new, new viruses and use genetic modification to enhance the, the, the virulence of viruses. And they wanted to put a furin cleavage site in the virus. And whether they did that or not, we don't know for sure, but we know they said they wanted to do that. So this was, a, and I say, you know, there is no reason. It's outrageous that American public money funded this and people are hiding the data of it. And if the Chinese are hiding the data of this because they're embarrassed about what happened, you know, and they were involved, they, they got themselves involved with American scientists to do this. So, you know, nobody should be hiding, no government should be hiding any data about this. This is a public emergency and a public health crisis and a publicly funded venture, publicly funded by the American government and the Chinese government. And all the people of the world should have all the data from this. One of the things I've always said about the Chinese is maybe the Chinese are so uh, has been so strict about this because they know something about the virus that we don't know. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's it, it, whatever it is, the data we shouldn't be holding up. Uh, Jeffrey Sachs holds up these hundreds of pages of blacked out, redacted. That's nonsense. This is public information. RT, key Russiagate source wins court. The case grew out of claims of official misconduct during the FBI's probe into the 2016 presidential election. The primary source for the controversial Steele dossier, uh, a guy named Igor Dechenko, was found not guilty on all accounts. Let let me say this. For a while, uh, there were a lot of people who thought Durham was going to be into this. If you look at his background— and you look what he's done, the, the Whitey Bulger case, et cetera. He is a part of the machine. I've always argued he was there to cover this thing up. He was never there to clean it up. We'll start with, uh, of course, look, and let me add this. You've got Kevin Klein-Smith. He was found guilty before of literally um, changing information and lying to the FISA court. He got one year of probation. He's already got his his uh, his lawyer his um, license back to pra- uh, to practice law. I mean, this thing is a is is a joke. And to me, I, I expect everybody to walk. Your thoughts? Uh, we'll start with you, Steve Porkinen. Yeah, we. I. It seems like throughout this entire process, uh, we've been on this show discussing exactly. What a, a a sham this whole ordeal has been. That there, that if Durham was serious about this, if there were serious actors involved, we've laid out the steps that he would have taken. We've laid out the processes by which they've completely ignored reality in order to to foister on either the most like easily dismissible people or discreditable people, discreditable people with this, uh, with, with, uh, what's his, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. The guy who just got the charges dropped against Dishanko, him. Igor Dishanko. Yeah. Um, the, he, uh, 
I mean, that's just kind of the final little slap in the face to the rest of the patriots that were holding out hope. Although these are, you know, the people who still think that, like, Bill Barr was a decent fella. <laughs> so you never know with them. Um, but I, it was just, it was one more thing to dangle in front of the right for a little bit. Now that that's gone, they can push the narrative that they're going to clean up in the midterms and start the real investigation. Oh, yeah. Uh, we got about two minutes. Jim Cavanaugh. Yeah, uh, sure. Look, this was specifically whether Danchenko lied about talking to Serge Milan. You know, so I don't know that he lied about that, but what and what specific evidence was given about that? But what the FBI knew was that the and what Danchenko told them was that, well, I didn't really have any direct knowledge of this. I just talked to this guy, Serge Milan, and this is not some something that I can testify as having certain knowledge of. So the FBI knew, and the FBI knew that the, whatever he was telling them about Serge Milan was, excuse me, was, was baloney, uh, and Serge Milan didn't know anything. So, you know, the point isn't whether... Danchenko, what he said and when he said it to Serge Milan and what he heard from him, but what the FBI actually knew going forward, they knew it was baloney and they went forward anyway. And that's what's not being focused on. And that's what's and will probably not be focused on because it would uh, undermine the FBI in, in a way that they don't want to do. And the felony charge is lying to the FISA court. I was a police officer. Let me tell you, I get caught caught lying in court. I'm going to get charged. The FBI deliberately, with knowledge, malice, and, and a forethought, lied to the court. And, and he's charging people with foolishness, with Mopri on the high seas or something. It's, a, it's absurd. Steve Poikinen and Jim Cavanaugh, gentlemen both, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate that analysis. Enjoy your weekends, and we look forward to having you guys back. Thank you. Thank you very much. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here next week on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out.